If you had to name what senses contribute to eating, I bet you would probably name taste and smell first. Makes sense. Taste and smell of a food probably contributes to majority of the preference that we show for what we eat. But I bet you'd be surprised to know that actually all eight of the senses are involved when eating. Yes, I said eight. If you're new to sensory processing, you might not know. There are actually eight sensory processing domains, not just five. Welcome to the Sensory Wise Solutions Podcast for Parents, where parents can get real, actionable strategies to support kids with sensory processing disorder. I'm Laura, OT and mom to Liliana, a sensory sensitive kid who inherited my anxiety and my love for all things Disney. Consider me your new OT mom bestie. I know my stuff, but I also know what it's really like in the trenches of parenting a child with sensory processing disorder. Okay, mom, enough about me. Let's start the podcast. Hi, everyone. Back at it with another celebration of OT Month episode. If you didn't catch the last episode, we talked about handwriting development, but today we are talking about picky eating as we continue to spread awareness about all of the wonderful things that OT can do to help people be successful in their everyday lives, which is our motto in the field. And today, like I said, we're talking about picky eating, which is a topic that many parents face at, I feel like, at least one point in their parenting journey. If you've never dealt with a child who won't eat something, then consider yourself a unicorn. You are very lucky. But some parents' journey with their child's picky eating is a little more severe than others and a little more stressful. So we're going to cover all of that today. We're going to talk about the skills that are required for eating, how sensory processing is related to eating, how OT can help picky eating, and of course, then when it's time to seek support from an OT. So this is going to be a long information-based episode. This isn't going to be heavy on strategies to try. I will probably do a future episode on that, maybe pull in some guests to help me talk about that. But this is more of like understanding what goes into picky eating, excuse me, how it develops, and like I said, when it's time to seek some help. So Let's just jump right in. First, we're going to talk about the skills that are needed for eating. And it's important to first mention that to OTs and probably speech therapists as well, um, that the act of feeding and eating are actually two separate things. So when we refer to feeding, we're thinking about the act of like feeding yourself or having someone feed you. So bringing the spoon and or your hand to your mouth to take a bite, being able to scoop the rice up and bring the cup to drink um, to drink from. So when we talk about eating, we're talking about food manipulation, chewing, swallowing, including the types of food that a person eats. So for this episode, I'm going to be mostly focusing on the act of eating. Um, I might talk about some skills related to feeding, but this is mostly about eating. So, and there's going to be a specific focus on kids who have a limited diet or are otherwise referred to as picky eaters or selective eaters. So let's talk about what skills and parts of development contribute to how a child eats and what they actually eat. First, we're going to talk about gross motor skills, which a lot of people find surprising to know that gross motor skills contribute to eating. But actually, if you think about it, you need postural strength 
and postural endurance to sit up in order to eat. If you remember, one of the milestones that they talk about that your infant is ready to start feeding solids is that they can sit up and hold their head upright. This is not just some arbitrary milestone that they made up. This is because you need to be able to hold your head up and to sit up so that you can properly chew, manipulate, and then digest the food, and it's safer that way. So a child who has weak postural strength or endurance would have a hard time sitting up at the table and staying upright. So maybe they're always leaning their head down or they prefer to stand and eat rather than sit at the table. Um, Or they're really wiggly, which can be a hidden sign of postural strength. A lot of times you hear of a wiggly child who likes to move and you automatically think that they're like a sensory seeker, which can be the case. But a lot of times kids who move a lot at the table and move um, their body might also have some core strength or postural issues because it actually takes a lot less postural strength for a child to stand up up and eat or to move around and wiggle than it does take for sitting in one spot and maintaining an upright position. It takes a lot of internal muscle adjustment and core activation to maintain an upright posture. So sometimes we see a lot of what we call drive-by eating when a child prefers to walk by the table, grab a bite to eat, and then like moves on and plays and they're always moving around. Um, Obviously, again, like I said, this could be related to vestibular seeking, like seeking movement and having a hard time just sitting still, Um, but gross motor postural control can contribute to that. Also, it's important just to remember and to keep in mind, gross motor development precedes fine motor development. So if you have a child who has fine motor challenges related to feeding and eating, you need to also make sure that their gross motor development and foundations are are okay. So I mentioned fine motor. Let's talk about fine motor. And when I say fine motor, I'm not only talking about hands. Fine motor skills includes your oral motor skills, which is the muscles in your mouth, because those are also small muscles. So... Advanced oral motor skills for chewing and swallowing, of course, is needed to chew and swallow foods. So if your child has a hard time with any of those movements in the mouth, sometimes it's also related to speech challenges, not always, but sometimes you could see that go hand in hand, then they might have a hard time chewing food. Grasp and precision might also be impacted in these children. So, of course, when we're talking about one of the first fine motor skills, we think about the pincer grasp, which you can put little Cheerios out or little frozen peas for them to grab with their fingers. And if there was a fine motor delay related to that, maybe they didn't explore food as much to the best of the ability. And maybe that's contributing to how they developed a certain taste or preference for certain foods. Or fine motor can be related to the act of self-feeding and having a hard time bringing the spoon to their mouth and all of that. But I want to go back and talk about the fine motor skills that I mentioned that are related to oral motor. So there are muscles in the tongue and the mouth um, and also part of the jaw that are considered fine motor control muscles and movements. So this contributes to a lot of eating and chewing and swallowing. So sometimes we see children who are picky eaters. So their parents will say um, they're only eating yogurt, oatmeal, ice cream, sometimes still baby foods, soups. And when we see that, um, the therapist, when we see foods that they prefer to eat all have the same texture it alerts us. And by us, again, I mean feeding therapists, OTs, speech therapists. Um, It alerts us that 
these children might have an oral motor challenge where their tongue or movement of their jaw for chewing can only tolerate textures that are easy to manipulate and chew in their mouth. So they tend to avoid textures that require more advanced chewing, like chicken breast or mixed textures like a sandwich or fried rice. So it's really important to remember this, that picky eating doesn't always stem from just them disliking the taste or food, the taste or smell of food. And by the way, I'm going to insert here that the way that I describe the oral motor movement and chewing and swallowing might be a little surface level. That's because I'm not a speech therapist. Speech therapists are really the owners of swallowing and chewing and all of the muscles of the mouth. Some OTs can get an advanced certification in that, but I don't. So I hope that that part of it just got my point across that chewing and swallowing is a huge part of eating, obviously, and can contribute to picky eating. So now let's talk about sensory processing skills, my favorite part. If you had to name what senses contribute to eating, I bet you would probably name taste and smell first. Makes sense. Taste and smell of a food probably contributes to majority of the preference that we show for what we eat. But I bet you'd be surprised to know that actually all eight of the senses are involved when eating. Yes, I said eight. If you're new to sensory processing, you might not know. There are actually eight sensory processing domains, not just five. So let's get into it. I'm not going to talk about taste and smell because, like I said, those are probably obvious and we don't need education on that. Obviously, people can develop a... Kids can have a preference for certain tastes and smells that can contribute to picky eating. So... There's not much past that, but I'm going to talk more about the hidden senses that contribute to eating and picky eating. So the first one is vestibular processing. So if you don't know, the vestibular sense is in your inner ear, and this is what processes movement, and it contributes to balance and posture and bilateral coordination. And as I already mentioned earlier, you need strong postural muscles in order to sit upright and to properly chew and swallow your food. And a solid vestibular sense actually contributes to postural muscles and postural adjustment. And also vestibular processing can be related to attention and your level of alertness, which is also needed at the table when you're focusing on what you're eating. Also, a child with vestibular processing issues may have a hard time sitting at the table. So they're always rocking back and forth or they're constantly getting up from the table. They're um, just wiggly and fidgety in their seat might be related to them seeking vestibular input. Then we have proprioceptive processing. So proprioception is the sense that gets activated from your muscles and tendons and joints, and it's responsible for developing body awareness, and it can help contribute to overall sensory regulation. So the proprioception sense can help a child know how to bring the food to their mouth, know where their mouth is so they don't miss their mouth. And the proprioception sense can also contribute to postural awareness and sitting upright in, co- in combination with the vestibular system. So a child who doesn't feel fulfilled with their proprioceptive sense might always like kick their feet against the the legs at the table or may really seek out like super crunchy or chewy foods at the table. And you might also see these kids chew some non-food items when they're not at the table. So maybe they're always chewing their nails, chewing the sleeve of their shirt, or chewing the top of their pencil. They just love chewing. That might be a child who seeks proprioceptive input, and this can contribute to some preferences for food. 
The interoception sense is the sense that's responsible for recognizing hunger and fullness cues. So as you can imagine, this is extremely relevant for feeding. Then there's also the visual processing skill. So a child obviously needs to be able to see what's on their plate, but they also need to then manage and filter out all the competing visuals that they're seeing in their environment and on their plate. So some children might be extremely sensitive to visual input, like certain colors or bright lights or movement. So if the environment where they're eating has something that's triggering them, even though you might not see it or might not know it, it might be distracting them or it might trigger them. They might exhibit some behaviors at the table that are completely unrelated to the food, but still impacts their appetite or their ability to focus or enjoy a meal. Then there's the tactile processing sense. This is the touch sense. And as you can imagine, it can definitely impact how a child explores and behaves around food. So the most common impact it can have is tolerating the way that different food textures feel on their tongue or in their mouth or just even also on their hands or their face. So my daughter sometimes will completely refuse to eat a certain food, even if she loves it, unless I feed her because she doesn't want to make a mess. So obviously you can imagine this brings up some extra emotions when I'm really stressed or just tired from the day and I don't feel like spoon feeding my almost five-year-old. So that happens in our house. I know many of you guys can relate to that. Then lastly, the auditory sense, so which is sound. So sound can play a huge role in eating, not just in the annoying stop crunching so loud way, because I know there's a lot of you who like, I forget what it's called. Um, there's some term for it that, that where you like cannot stand the sound that someone is like eating. (laughs) So it's more than that, although that is a huge part of it, but think of all the clinks and clanks from the utensils or plates or the table chatter or electronics. If they're at the table or even in the background, if there's dogs barking, if there's babies crying, especially if you're at a restaurant, just all the extra sounds going on or in the school lunchroom. When a child has sensory sensitivities and they get triggered or overwhelmed by sound, then all of those background sounds can trigger their stress response as they become dysregulated. And guess what happens when they have that stress response? Some hormones get pumped out, cortisol gets released, and this can act as an appetite suppressant in some people. So was all of that surprising to you about sensory processing and all of those other skills, gross motor and fine motor skills contributing to eating? Eating is not that simple. It's not just bringing the food to your mouth and chewing and swallowing. It's a lot more. And if you have a picky eater, chances are they may have a mix of these things going on. It may not just be that they're picky about the taste of things, although, of course, that's probably a huge thing. So now, now that you understand that all of these things can play a role behind the scenes in eating. Let's talk about how this plays out in OT. So if your child has some of those gross motor postural control challenges that I mentioned, remember this is what helps your child sit up at the table, which is necessary to help with food chewing and digestion, then an OT would do a lot of core strengthening exercises and activities. This could be anything from doing your classic obstacle course to sitting on an exercise ball while playing with a board game at the table. They might have your child sit on a swing or kneel on an unstable platform, trying to maintain balance while hitting a balloon or popping bubbles. 
There's so many different ways that your OT can target core strengthening, but they might be doing that to prepare them for sitting upright at the table. If your child has any of the fine motor challenges associated with eating, your OT might set out some, maybe some dry sensory bins with pasta and beans or rice with a ton of scoopers, and they might hide little objects in there and give them tongs and things to pick up tiny pieces with it because that's working on fine motor skills. If your child has oral motor chewing challenges, which again is like is another fine motor skill, typically speech therapists are usually the ones to help with this specific issue because they have more of an in-depth knowledge of motor development. I am not certified in any advanced assessment or intervention related to oral motor skills, but your specific OT that you search for might have this training and they will do a lot of mouth exercises to warm up those muscles, the tongue, and all of the movements. For any of the sensory processing challenges that I mentioned, your OT would probably do a mix of obstacle courses, other sensory integration techniques, sensory play, and maybe even a listening program with music for regulation and for auditory processing. So those are some things that an OT might do just to prepare the child with those underlying prerequisite skills for eating. But in addition to these interventions, OTs also directly support the child in the eating environment. So they might have, they might work on eating at the clinic or they might go to your house and work on eating there or do it virtually. But there's two main ways that um, OTs work on feeding or actually on eating in a direct way. So there's accommodations and then there's also therapeutic feeding techniques. So one of the first things an OT will look at if you have a picky eater is your or your child's eating environment and the way that your child is positioned for eating at the table. So the optimal sitting position for eating is what we call the 90-90-90 position, which is when a child's hips and their knees and their ankles are all flexed at 90 degrees. So when I say flex, I just mean like bent at 90 degrees. So think of a child's back upright and they're sitting in a chair. So their hips should be, if their back is upright, their hips should be bent at 90 degrees. Then their knees should be bent over the edge of the chair at 90 degrees. And then their feet should be planted firmly and parallel to the ground so that their ankle is at a 90 degree um, angle. So an OT might offer back support or a footstool to help facilitate this posture, which is the first thing that you need before even thinking about eating um, at the table. The OT might also help you adjust like where the seat is at the table, or they might take a look at the environment if there are any lights that they could help dim down or any other sensory components to the environment that's contributing um, to picky eating. So then that's like the accommodation piece, the environmental accommodations that the OTs can help with. Then here's what feeding therapy can look like um, in OT. So um, there are there are a few different feeding certifications and courses that OTs take, um, but whichever one they do, they should always offer some form of parent coaching, whether that means you're there present with them for eating or they provide you some education and training outside of that because you really do need to be on the same page with language and food offerings at home in order to carry over any of the progress that you're making in therapy. So feeding therapy might look different, but you should at least make sure that there is a parent coaching component involved. But one of the most common um, feeding interventions and certifications that is considered one of the gold standards of feeding therapy is called SOS, 
which right now I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's spelled S-O-S, like the letters S-O-S, the S-O-S approach to feeding. And so this is um, what I am trained in, and this is, like I said, considered to be the gold standard of feeding practice and feeding therapy. And the SOS method is an approach that emphasizes purposeful play and safe food exploration using a stepwise progression in a way that meets the child where they're at. It involves a specific curriculum for introducing certain foods based on the child's current food repertoire, so what they already eat, and then it... Um, it adds foods based on a certain hierarchy and sensory characteristics that make sense for that child. So it all sounds very complex, but there's a there's a specific approach and a curriculum for it. I really love this training. So if you can find a therapist who's certified in SOS approach to feeding, you're in good hands. It is research-based, and I've just had a lot of success working on this with my clients in direct therapy, as well as even just coaching parents through it virtually. They've had success with this. Okay, so last, let's talk about how you know if you do need to seek support from an OT. You might be thinking, I have a picky eater, but I'm not sure if they're picky enough to like need an OT for this. So my first answer that I say for like almost any childhood development behavior or concern is I ask, I, I, I ask you or when I talk to a parent on the phone or I'm doing an intake call, I ask the parent, how much is this impacting your or your child's daily life? by this behavior, by this challenge. So in this case, picky eating. Um, Maybe you are a nutritionist or a teacher and yes, you have an extremely picky eater, but you have enough tools in your toolbox to get creative and make it by and to add foods in your own way without needing professional support. Great. Then maybe you don't need an OT. But maybe you have a completely different field that you're working in. Maybe you're an accountant or maybe you're not working right now and you're just home with the kids and you're feeling completely helpless and desperate um, for help now for a solution. Like day in and day out, you're just stressed about food and it's a big thing and this keeps you up at night and you don't know what to do. Then I would check in with an OT. There's no harm in checking in with an OT. When I say check in, you can call a clinic. Sometimes the intake coordinator can talk to you. Sometimes they can do a quick screening over the phone by asking you certain questions and then let you know if you would be a good candidate for OT. So there's no harm in doing that. Um, But there is like a technical list of things that make a child more of a good candidate for feeding therapy and things that I look for when I'm talking to a parent specifically for feeding. Um, And here is that list. So the first thing is if your child has less than 20 various foods in their food repertoire. So when I say various foods, I mean like chicken nuggets is a food and chicken breast is a food and um, let's say like ground chicken meat balls is a Food. So those are three different things, even though they're all chicken, that's three various foods. McDonald's fries and Carl's Jr. fries is a, is a different food. So if your child has less than 20 foods in the repertoire, that might be a sign that you need support from an OT. Also, if your child has maybe one single food group that they don't have any safe foods in, so maybe they have no protein at all in their diet, or they have no fruits or vegetables, and I you combine them, right? You could you can make up for having no vegetables by having some fruits. So if they have zero fruits or vegetables at all together, then that might be a time to seek support from an OT. 
or if there's a weight or nutritional intake concern brought up from the pediatrician, um, that might be time to seek help from an OT. And another sign is if they have a small set of safe foods, so maybe it's even over 20, but it's still small, like less than 30, but you notice that they keep dropping them, meaning they will eat like um, blueberries every single day for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then one day they stop eating blueberries because they're burnt out and then they don't bring it back to their diet. And if this happens over and over again, eventually your list of safe foods is going to get smaller and smaller. So if that happens where they drop their safe foods, then that might be time to seek help from an OT. If you know you want to look for an SOS feeding specialist in your area, you can actually head straight to their website. So go to sosapproachtofeeding.com and there's like a category that says parents. And then when you click on that, it lets you search by location to find a service provider in your area. Um, you, another route is, again, it doesn't have to be an SOS feeding therapist, though that's the one that I vouch for the most, but you can just call around to local OT clinics Go through a local parenting or moms or Facebook group or other community support group and ask if anyone has a certain OT clinic that they recommend and just call those clinics up. Find one that takes your insurance if you're going through insurance um, and they'll let you know what steps you need to take to get your pediatrician to refer you to their clinic. Um, Or there are a lot of clinics that offer private pay, cash pay clinics. A lot of clinics are going this route these days. Um, but the last bit here, of course, OT clinics can have huge, huge wait lists. So if you're desperate for help and to get started supporting your child at home with picky eating, I can help. I do offer one-on-one consultations via Zoom. You can head to the otbutterfly.com forward slash parent consult to learn more. All right. Thanks for being here. I hope you learned some good stuff in this podcast episode. Like I said, I will have a future episode where I give specific tips to supporting picky eating. This one, I just wanted to talk about what contributes to picky eating. And I hope that this still gave you some nuggets of wisdom to go off of, maybe gave you the encouragement to seek support from an OT, or maybe gave you validation that you're doing the right thing already. I will see you guys next week. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating it and leaving a review, which helps other parents find me as well. Want to learn more from me? I share tons more over on Instagram at the OT Butterfly. See you next time.